If you haven't noticed lately, injustices against marginalized communities are being brought to light in a way that they never have before. So, of all times in American history, now is the time to reach out to marginalized communities, to show your support. I recently had the opportunity of sitting down with America Indivisible's Lita Azim to talk about how to reach out to one of the most marginalized communities in American history, the Muslim community. Let's see what she had to say. Before we get into this incredible conversation about reaching the Muslim community within democracy reform, can you just introduce yourself and tell everyone uh, what you do and what America Indivisible is all about? Yeah, of course. Uh, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, my name is Lita Azim. I am the program manager for American Divisible. American Divisible is a nonpartisan, nonprofit coalition effort to address a rising bigotry against Muslim, members of the Muslim communities. Um, so, those who appear to be Muslim from Black, Arab, Sikh, and South Asian American communities by reinforcing the American values of equality and strength through diversity. I manage the day to day operations and, of course, our programming. We have a program called the Public Leaders for Inclusion Council which is a leadership development program that equips public servants and elected and appointed and professional positions in local county and state government to explore practices and policies that challenge anti-Muslim bigotry and other forms of hate while building inclusion and social resilience in their communities. We started that in 2019 and it's already our third year, which is crazy to think. So we have a network of public servants who are committed to, to building inclusion and social resilience. So it seems like when it comes to uh, wanting to reach out to a community who's considered to be one of uh, a diverse community or uh, maybe a minority, you all are the people to talk to. <laughs> we try, we try. We, we also have like a 25 member coalition group. So if there's something that's not in our capacity, we'll definitely reach out to our members and, and help you out. It's not necessarily unheard of now for uh, mainstream organizations and community leaders to want to reach out to marginalized communities with the Muslim community being included. What do you feel is unique about Muslim outreach compared to reaching out to other marginalized communities? I think the Muslim community is just very interesting. I think the interest of reaching out to the Muslim community is relatively new. I think since 2001, post 9-11, the Muslim community has been like pretty under the radar. They're just, just going day to day. And then unfortunately what happened in 9-11, uh, Muslims just became the forefront of foreign policy and, and like what's going on in the United States. So I wanna say their political activism is relatively new. I also think that politicians see the value of reaching out to various Muslim communities across the country now. Muslim communities are also in a lot of swing districts and swing states like Virginia, Florida, Michigan, Illinois, which is not really a swing, but like still heavy populated area. I think politicians are now seeing the value of the Muslim community. And at the same time, the Muslim community is becoming more politically active. They're also realizing that the Muslim community see value in like healthcare and civil rights and education and environmental issues. And it's far more than just foreign policy that they're reaching out to the community for. Um, so I do think that's really unique. And one more thing is the fact that Muslim communities are also so diverse. We're spread out across the country. We all look different. 
Uh, we come from different cultural backgrounds. So reaching out to Muslim communities are, is very unique because it's like, it's not one tailored message. And I think as many generation of immigrants were shaped by our local politics. So my parents are from Afghanistan and just speaking of the Afghan American community, I think if you compare the Southern California Afghan American community to like Virginia or New York's community, you won't be able to tailor, like that message has to be different. Um, because they care about different things. And that's definitely shaped by their local community. Thank you so much. I don't know (laughs) how many times a day I say to people, cultures are not a monolith, even though there's (laughs) one name to to describe a culture, there are intricacies within that culture. No one culture is a monolith. You cannot have one message and expect to reach an entire culture. 100%. There's no, and that's with any, any type of identity, in my opinion, like there's no way to be a woman. There's no one way to be young. There's no one way to be black. There's no one way to be a Muslim. With that being said, um, I don't have an extensive knowledge of Muslim culture, especially those that are considered to be sacred, just because I respect it being sacred. But I also know that many aren't educated on the true nature of it. And I think that that plays into why many don't outrightly try to reach the Muslim community. So what are some simple and maybe non-invasive ways do you feel that people can educate themselves on Muslim culture to kind of better heal the divides and better help them communicate with Muslims in their area? Yeah, that's a great question. And like, you know, for the record, I want to say it is, it's scary. And it's, I don't, I wouldn't say that for just the Muslim community, but I think with anything that's new, it's scary to go out of your comfort zone and, and try to figure out what's right and what's wrong and making sure you don't insult anyone or just look like an idiot. So like, I totally understand. I do think the best way to start is just being very genuine. And I do think it's, it's being intentional. So you generally want to learn more about like my religion with a clear mindset. You genuinely want to find ways to work together or ways you can amplify our voices. I definitely do think that's the first step in, in just mindfulness. Second, there are so many organizations out there that have information on how to educate yourself and how to be an ally even. For example, one of our coalition partners, Shoulder to Shoulder, is a coalition-based campaign of religious denomination and faith-based organizations and communities that commit to ending discrimination and violence against Muslims in the United States. They bring faith-based organizations and religious domination together. But how do they do that? By equipping and connecting and mobilizing faith leaders to effectively take actions. They actually have an amazing toolkit that breaks down how to educate yourself and your community about Islam and American Muslims. They even teach you how to, how to get to know your Muslim neighbors and even how to become an ally. They also do have faith over fear trainings. They recommend uh, these really great educational videos with a great overview of religion from PBS and the Unity Production Foundation. ISPU is a organization that surveys a lot of American Muslims. So there's something called the American Muslim Poll that is released every year that um, shares a lot of insight on uh, the American Muslim population and where they stand in like civic engagement and, and just opinion in general. They have a list of books, but from that list, like my favorite is The Fear of Islam by Todd Green, where it really 
touches base on Islamophobia in the United States and in Europe. My other personal favorite is Orientalism by Edward Said, but that is a little bit heavier and denser. And of course, you know, the Quran is a great way to, to learn more as well. But lastly, I do want to add, like, just listening to American Muslims' experiences and stories are really important, too. And thankfully, nowadays, we see a lot of op-eds in the New York Times and in the Washington Post that showcase American Muslims' experiences and stories. Those are a great way to learn more and, like, to understand the Muslim experience and even to learn more about the religion itself. I know from experience that being in a marginalized community and having others be allies and trusting those allies, trust is the biggest thing. Like anybody that I'm expecting to support me or anybody that is coming forth and trying to support my community, I need to be able to trust them in order to indicate that that effort is genuine. What can people do when they see Islamophobia and xenophobia be played out in mainstream ways? For example, the news. You'd be surprised by the differences in news coverage where Islamophobia and xenophobia is so on the forefront, but not in a blatant way. So what can allies do to let the Muslim community know that, hey, we see this, we're going to advocate against it, we're going to speak out in a way that would build trust? I will say Islamophobia, xenophobia can be showcased in such intricate ways that we don't even recognize. No matter what the political... Uh, party it is like they're like both sides third party as well has said some Islamophobic things some are a little bit more blatant than others um, but for the record I just just wanted to state that um, in ways to show allyship if you see it in the media whether that's an article or on your local news I think a great way is to email or to call that news station or the publisher and let them know that this isn't appropriate that um, the reporting is biased or what they said on television uh, reinforces the idea of Islamophobia and othering. Seeing that, especially from non-Muslims, is really important. And I think uh, we need to hold everyone in our society accountable, regardless of their position. So I think that's probably like the best way uh, to be an ally. Another way is creating that relationship even before something happens. For example, unfortunately, there are a lot of mosques that get finalized during like Ramadan or Eid or even just just because, uh, whether that's graffiti or throwing pieces of pork, whatever it is. And then we see the community show up and like paint the mosque. And I think that's great. But I think what's even more important is having those relationships even before the crisis response. I think reaching out and having dinners with their Muslim neighbors, having these conversations, learning more about the religion, asking those tough questions. And I think most of all, asking them what is helpful for them, I think would be really important. So I think generally the responding to the publishers or like your local news or national news is a great way. And I think too, is creating a relationship, reaching out to your Muslim neighbors and letting them know that they are welcomed here, that you are an ally and you're looking for ways to be there for them and to support them and to use your position of privilege to make them feel comfortable, regardless of like a crisis that has affected the community. Another part 
of having a relationship uh, with a community that's considered to be marginalized is knowing that the two communities advocate for each other and also knowing that they advocate for just overall anti-oppression and that they advocate for civic engagement. Do you know of any Muslim-led anti-oppression efforts or any Muslim-led uh, civic participation efforts? Yeah, most definitely. Like, I think this is where we see the intersectionality of being Muslim and, and being Black or being Asian or being a woman come in. So, for example, Linda Sarsour, she's one of the head organizers for the Women's March in 2016. Zara Bilu was also heavily involved in the same march. There's also the Black Lives Matter movement where we again, see the intersectionality of being Black and Muslim. Um, there's an amazing organization called Muslim ARC. Um, they do great racial justice education work. We have Attorney General Keith Ellison, who back in 1989 actually formed the Coalition for Police Accountability. And he's actually one of the first, or he is the first Muslim to be elected to Congress. And then we also see historical figures like Malcolm X, who was a prominent leader during this civil rights movement, who's spoken a lot about the intersection of social justice and Islam in a lot of his uh, speeches. And then there's a lot of Muslims active on human rights issues abroad. So we have Malala, who is pretty famous for her advocacy with girls' education around the world, not just in Pakistan and Afghanistan. So those are just to name a few. I will say that most of the people I listed are visibly Muslim, even with Keith Ellison. Like, obviously, he doesn't wear a headscarf or anything, but you know, he took his oath of office on the Quran. As I mentioned, Malcolm X, he also spoke a lot about the intersectionality of Islam and social justice. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of context clues when it comes to these activists and and showing that they're they're Muslim and other anti-oppression efforts that they're interested in. I'm not sure if you're um, familiar with the book Infidel. Ayan Yersi wrote it. I think that was one of the first books I read that really helped me understand intersectionality. Awesome. Um, because she is a Muslim woman and she wasn't just talking about the Muslim experience, but she was specifically talking about um, her experience as a Muslim woman who is of a darker tone and how it all played into her experiences. That's great. Yeah, I think like sometimes the context clues are there, but it's just like not as obvious as like black and white. Like I think sometimes we just overlook those things where that intersectionality piece that you mentioned is like so crucial to that person's identity and like why they do what they do. And, and sometimes they're more at risk, as you mentioned, like someone of darker complexion is definitely more at risk than someone of like lighter complexion and someone who wears like a headscarf. So I do want to know um, your take on <laughs> how the two major political parties play a role in the relationship between the Muslim community and mainstream politics. Do you feel that that the efforts on either political side have been enough to kind of mend that relationship? And if not, do you think that a more outright effort on the, on the part of Democrats and Republicans could be a way to kind of mend those fences that the rest of the world may have with the Muslim community? I think something that I mentioned earlier, and I hate to kind of pin this around 9-11, but I do think that Muslim communities were kind of just coasting after 9-11, there was just a big shift. Like Muslims became politicized, they became the target of hate crimes and superstition. And there's a huge amount of surveillance that continues in some ways. But I think over the last 
few years that has like shifted. I think um, during that time, there was a huge effort from so many different Muslim civic organizations like CARE, MGAGE, MPAC, Empower Change, Jetpack and Polygon, just to name a few that worked really hard to build up the civic engagement of Muslim communities. And I think most of all, convincing American politicians that their Muslim constituents are really important and that their message should ta- should be tailored to the American Muslim community. And again, that it's, we care more about other things than U.S. foreign policy. So I think in turn, what we see with the political parties, personally, I've seen a shift. Like I think in 2015, Senator Bernie Sanders, one of the main Uh, candidates for presidency at the time actually went and visited a mosque, not because he's talking about national security. He was talking to them about his platform. And to this day, that amazes me and that gets me, it hits me in the heart because I'm like, I have not seen a candidate come to a mosque and generally talk about their platform that isn't related to like terrorism. And I actually think that moved the marker because at that point you see an equation where it's like we have candidates that are like a primary candidate go out of their way to like tailor their message and show their platform to the Muslim community. And then you also have these amazing civic American Muslim organizations that are inspiring folks to to vote, to show the importance of voting. And again, you have Muslim communities in key swing states and key swing districts. So you have this like storm kind of viewing where it's like, hey, you know, like you you see someone like widening the marker, and then we see like higher voter participation. I think during the 2020 election, the Biden team actually released a document called the Biden Agenda for a Muslim American community. And it's actually a detailed plan that addresses issues that's tailored to Muslim communities. And that's the first time we've ever seen something like that from a presidential nominee, like an agenda solely focused on American Muslim communities. I will say Senator Elizabeth Warren in 2019, 2020 has also released a similar plan during the primaries. And I wanna say that didn't go unnoticed, but to have a presidential nominee actually release it, I think like a month or two before election, the before the election is like huge. The Democratic parties effort has been far more sophisticated and far more action-based. It's been inclusive. They reach out to some of the organizations I mentioned earlier, and even like Muslim leaders and imams across the country, which is really great to see. And I think that's progress over the last few years. Um, But generally, I will say I haven't seen very much outreach from the Republican Party on a national level. I haven't seen it on a ground level either. They haven't done that in a very clear or effective way as far as I've seen. And I think the same goes for the third party. I haven't seen the same efforts. So I definitely see the difference between the three parties. Uh, Democrats have definitely taken the lead and has been more intentional about their outreach. It doesn't go unnoticed. Can you please tell everyone what role America Indivisible plays in the mending of divides between Muslims and other communities, as well as Muslims and the mainstream uh, political scene and mainstream nonprofit scene? Um, I think the fact that we are a relationship-based organization, like we play, that plays a huge role. Like we bring people together, diverse communities and elected officials for like focused conversations. So something 
I didn't mention earlier is like pre-pandemic, we have roundtables where we try to bring the Muslim community to the table with their local elected and appointed officials where we build that relationship. As mentioned earlier, a lot of politicians don't have a relationship with, the, with their Muslim constituents. So we're trying to build that before like a rapid response or like unfortunately something were to happen to the Muslim community and that's when the elected official comes out. Uh, we wanna do that beforehand. And I think at the same time, that's how you raise the civic health of American Muslims as well. It's like, hey, like this, this person is coming to meet you and you can voice your concerns that you have like in your local city, whether that is the train being too loud or traffic or like speed bumps, whatever it is, like that's something we try to do at a local level. We also provide resources like toolkits for community leaders who are interested on how to be better engaged with their fellow neighbors and coworkers and other local groups. So we also help governors and mayors and local officials to deepen their engagement. As I mentioned earlier with our roundtables, that's something of a priority for us. Uh, we also do have a 25 member coalition that varies. Some of them are national, some of them are local and they help us reach out to communities we probably wouldn't be able to if we stayed in Washington DC, for example. It's as simple as like relationship building, but that's honestly the start of it is like, unfortunately it's humanizing the other that folks don't know about that has only seen images on TV for the last uh, like over 10 years and what they see abroad. And it's just like, unfortunately like humanizing it and be having to be more familiar, whether that's Muslims or Islam or those who are perceived to be Muslim. So again, Arab, Sikh, South Asian, uh, black communities that have nothing to do with the religion, but unfortunately are discriminated against. Um, so it really just starts with relationship building and allyship and coalition work. And it's all of us are working towards the same goal. And it's, it's like, let's work, do it together and, and efficiently. I love that. I love that relationships are the basis of mending those fences and creating outreach. Because honestly, legislation policies can only do so much. But as a society, if we have not changed our relationship with one another, and if we haven't changed um, the culture that is our national thought process, the only way that we change that is by building relationships and changing our mindset individually. So I think that's great. It's great that you don't have some this checklist of, of things that you need to do if you wanna properly reach out to the Muslim community. It is literally as simple as building relationships. Thank you so much. Um, how can listeners get in contact with America Indivisible if they want to help and how can they get in contact with you or who should they get in contact with if they want to involve themselves? Yeah, please reach out. Um, I'll definitely share my email, but for listeners, it's my first name, L-I-D-A at americaindivisible.org. Uh, would love to hear from you if you have any feedback or if you have any more questions or if you'd like uh, more access to resources, uh, please let me be a resource. Um, but if you reach out to us, we'll love to talk to you and figure out how we can help. If if you're interested in bringing a roundtable to your community, we'll also love to do that. As things slow, like slowly start opening up, maybe we can do things in person, but if not, potentially we can do something virtual. But yeah, so please reach out and I'll, I'll definitely share my email in writing. 
Well, thank you so much, Lita, for talking to me. I would love to say sitting down and talking to me, but of course we're online, but thank you so much. No, no worries. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm excited to see and hear from your listeners. When I listen to people talk about uniting this country, building the cross-partisan or non-partisan movement, I don't always hear people talk about uniting communities that are currently marginalized or uncomfortable. I hear about a joining of ideologies, but I don't always hear about a joining of other identities. Rebuilding this country to be the melting pot that it was meant to be is about including everybody because everybody is necessary. And that includes the Muslim community. Is the history between America and the Muslim community raw and violent at many points? Absolutely. But does that mean that we can't mend fences and move forward? No, it doesn't. Local efforts, regional efforts, state efforts, national efforts are all needed to make changes in this country. And they're greatly appreciated and noticed. But it's what you can do as an individual that makes real impact too. Getting to know the Muslims in your neighborhood, having conversations with them, building relationships with them, asking them, what do you need? How can I make you feel more comfortable in this country? How can I make you feel more welcome? How can I advocate for you? It's these small, but impactful, genuine and intentional efforts that really start to create slow, gradual, but effective change in our society. My name is Shakira Mills. I'm the Deputy Chief of Staff for Bridge Alliance, and I thank you for listening.